Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe Devader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games that they come from, without getting too bogged down in music theory. Joe, what are this week's games? Up first is 2010's Near, a quest to save a little girl from a magical disease that launched one of gaming's weirdest and most interesting niche franchises, with a soundtrack written in the fictional Chaos language. Following that is the side-scrolling run-and-gun platformer about a worm in a supersuit, which has been ported more times with different soundtracks than you can even believe. 1994's Earthworm Jim. Yes, there is version confusion that binds these two games together. What with uh, near gestalt, near replicant, near. <laughs> There's also so many different versions of Earthworm Jim. I feel like they each have their weirdness, but it's this common thread that binds them together. Yeah, uh, and we'll get into why the fact that Nier has this problem is so weird in the first place. <laughs> like, it's even weirder than you think if you don't know the story of that game's uh, development. But uh, yeah, these are two games we probably should talk about at some point. Like, Earthworm Gem, I believe, was a listener suggestion. I think so, yeah. And Nier has a game coming out, like, in two days. <laughs> Yes, that's uh, pretty timely. It's going to be a banger of an episode. But first, Joe, how are you doing? What are you playing? I have been playing too much Dicey Dungeons. I have now completed every episode of The Thief and over half the episodes of The Robot. <laughs> so, oops. I don't know why I suddenly decided to just go super hard in on Dicey Dungeons. I think it's kind of the same thing as you've been talking about with Hades over the past couple weeks, where it's just. I just want to play Dicey Dungeons, and anything else is like, yeah, I could play other games, but I just want to play Dicey Dungeons, you know? Yeah, I, I relate to that for sure. Well, I'm glad you're getting that roguelike itch. I picked up Doom 2016 again, but this time I did so on Xbox Series X, which, you know, on my PC where I played it before, I got to run it on some pretty high settings, and it looked great, but... Ooh, with the TV size, with the 4K HDR, it sings 60 frames per second. I got back to the point where I got to before. So I'm like, I, I hit that point, I can continue on Xbox. And then I'm looking at like what's coming out in you know the game world. Uh, at the end of the month here in April, new Pokemon Snap. Excited for that. Mm -hmm. In the middle of May, assuming it sticks, Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Oh, and, and isn't something else coming out in between then? Resident Evil Village. Well, hmm, maybe I should pick up Resident Evil 7 Biohazard once again. So I started that fresh again, got further than I did last time. So let's see, where am I? I did the Mia videotape where you kind of had to avoid Marguerite there. I have two of the three dog heads for that key early on. And I just got to the save point after the first black goo monster so mm. a couple hours in uh but certainly further than i did last time uh which is, is nice i'm making good progress on that and i think i've got a couple weeks here before uh, new video games for 2021 start to launch 
if I remember correctly, the, the, the farthest you got last time was uh, you assumed that the first time Jack busts through a wall, you're supposed to fight him. Which, I mean, to be fair, not a hard thing to assume. Usually when an enemy like that uh, is coming at you, you're supposed to fight them. But I'm glad that uh, the episode could happen where I could be like, oh no, you're supposed to run. You're supposed to get out of there. Would you believe that Simple Stealth fixed that problem? You saw him <laughs> down the hall and just like, don't, just stay away from him. Let him pass. And then you can move on and go talk to the police officer. And then for what it's worth, uh, the episode of Original Sound Chat for Resident Evil 7 did help with remembering, grab the key. Yeah. For the car. Grab the <laughs> so, key. So that was a good one. But yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Jack is uh, a delightful surprise so far. In the meantime, let's talk about some composer follow-up news. All the composers we've talked about on the show, most of them are still working today. They're still doing great things in the industry. And the video game industry news, since at the time of we're recording, uh, sometimes relates back to games or composers that we've talked about before. Let's talk about Nintendo's Indie World presentation this week. A few news stories popped up from that. Fez is available on Switch right now. You can also listen to that episode of Original Soundcheck where we talked about Fez and its soundtrack from Disaster Piece. T. Lopes is composing for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, so uh, quite a couple weeks for him as he's on the Streets of Rage 4 DLC and now on this TMNT game. And then Joe, uh, take it away. I'll let you do the honors with this one. Oxen Free 2. Lost Signals coming later this year. Ah, oh, I didn't even know I wanted a sequel to Oxen Free, but it's coming and it looks really good. <laughs> and I'm I'm very excited for it. And the composer Andrew Roman, or also known as Scientific, uh, tweeted it out, so it seems like he's going to be doing the music once again. I'm very very excited for you. Ah, I'm so happy. It's the and of course, that's the indie world that I miss, because I was sleeping. You didn't watch it live. Yeah, the first one you missed. Oh my god. It just figures. It just figures. Three separate people DM'd me about it. You being one of them. Meanwhile, uh, it's something I'm a little bit less excited for, but hey, it's kind of cool that it's happening in the first place. Uh, there is a seven-disc soundtrack for Animal Crossing New Horizons available for pre-order. Apparently four of the discs are... Uh, just background music from the game, with three of them being K.K. Slider songs. As much as I love Animal Crossing New Horizons, I don't really think that I'm gonna grab a seven-disc collection of the music from it. And also, Nintendo's not gonna put it on streaming services, so... Maybe if they decide to do that, you reward good behavior, but uh, I don't know. Speaking of uh, game soundtracks coming to streaming services, and also... Available for purchase, Capcom soundtracks. A few popped up where they have them on Steam for you to buy, but also to stream on Spotify. So these include Okami, Devil May Cry 5, Virgil's Rebirth is the DLC part of that soundtrack, and Dino Crisis 1 and 2. Uh, you know, people seem to think that may have implications for the future for Dino Crisis. I don't know how to tell you this. I don't know. Like, maybe don't hold your <laughs> breath. I don't know. It should be noted that all of those were already on Spotify, uh, because Capcom just did that dump mm, recently, like right. a couple years ago. But yeah, they're they're new on Steam, which is super weird because I'm pretty sure two of those are on Steam, and Dino Crisis One and Two are not. I'm pretty sure they've never re-released that game in any way, shape, or form. Maybe this does point to a new Dino Crisis game. Mm. I doubt it. 
but maybe it does. If they made a Dino Crisis game in the style of Resident Evil 2... Oh, man. I'd play it. That sounds cool. Okay. All right. All right. Maybe. Maybe. But it's not going to happen. Anyways, let's talk about our first game, and that is Nier. Nier was originally released for PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 on April 22nd, 2010 in Japan and Australia. Also released on April 23rd and 27th in Europe and North America, respectively. It was developed by Kavia and published by Square Enix. And as you alluded to at the beginning of the show, there are actually two versions of Nier in Japan. See, in Japan, it was split into two releases, being Gestalt on the Xbox 360 and Replicant on the PS3. But the systems they're on is not the only difference between these two games, because Nier is a third-person action RPG where the player takes control of a nameless protagonist as he fights to save a sick young girl named Yona. And depending on which version you play, the relationship between the protagonist and Yona is different. See, in Replicant, you play as a teenage boy, and Yona is his little sister. But in Gestalt, you play as an older man, with Yona being his daughter. Gestalt is the only version that we got here in the West, and obviously they just titled it Near. And uh, the main character's age in relation to Yona as the dad side, that was actually changed specifically for us. Hmm. They figured that would do a better job of drawing in Western players, uh, because I, I kind of agree, because I think it's a better dynamic, in my opinion. But, I mean, hey, unfortunately, uh, Replicant is the one that's getting uh, remade and coming out in a couple of days from now on the 11th anniversary of the original game's release. Oh, neat. I mean, I guess it makes sense for the the Western release of Gestalt. And, like, you get to put a big, muscly man on the cover. Like, I guess marketers are happier with that than a brother-sister dynamic. I don't know. Apparently, that was entirely because Square Enix uh, US was basically like, people aren't going to buy this game if it's a brother and a sister. So... Mm. I don't know where they got that information, but I do still agree. Like, it's the better dynamic. Uh, the story of Nier actually follows the fifth ending of the game Drakengard. The fifth ending of Drakengard is a joke ending. In it, the villain and the heroes of the game are transported to real-life Tokyo, where the heroes defeat the villain using a rhythm game before being shot down by a fighter jet. <laughs> It's less funny now in the context of Nier, because the idea is that when this monster and these heroes brought magic into the Earth, they brought more than just a funny rhythm game with hijinks. They also brought an apocalyptic magical plague that totally destroys society on Earth. Then 1,312 years later, which is a bizarrely specific amount of time, the protagonist is tasked with trying to find a cure for Yona, who is suffering from a terminal disease known as the Black Scrawl. During his travels, he encounters a magical talking book known as Grimoire Vice, who joins him on his journey. 
Along the way, the protagonist also meets two other party members, the hot-tempered and very vulgar Kaine, who is also, just as an aside, the best character in the game, and a young boy named Emil, whose eyes turn anybody he looks at into stone. I'm sure if you know anything about Nier, then you know Emil, at least, because of the fact that Yogotaro wears his head. Fun fact, he does not start the game looking like that. He just looks like a regular kid. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, the the circular head with the, the big eyes and the big toothy grin is really uh, the one piece of iconography from this franchise, I think. Yeah, he he turns into that like late into the game, <laughs> hmm. if I remember correctly. So together, this unlikely group of heroes travels the ruins of the world fighting aggressive creatures known as Shades and encountering various remnants from the old world. So the questions become, can this group find a cure for Yona's ailment? What is the origins of the Shades and what are they after? And who is the mysterious Shadow Lord besides the most cliche name in the world? So here's where I'll ask, Peter, what are your experiences with Nier? I mean, it took me a while to even play Nier Automata, right? Like, I tried it and didn't really get on with it, and then tried later, and then, oh, I really enjoyed it. And yet, the release of the upcoming remake of Nier Replicant isn't doing much for me. Though, when I think about Nier, I think about people, video game music fans, who put it in the upper echelons of best soundtracks of all time. And you know what? They aren't wrong. I would agree with that. I think, from what I can tell, I watched a Let's Play of the original Nier. Uh, that's how I experienced it. A, because it's very hard to get a hold of nowadays, because what's backwards compatibility even? Uh, and B... A lot of fans of the series will tell you that it's not actually all that worth playing. Hmm. It's very clunky. It does not play great. A lot of its gameplay is very monotonous and not super good. But the story and the narrative stuff that it does and the soundtrack are all just 10 out of 10 some of the best things in that category in any way, shape, or form that games have ever seen. I'm very much looking forward to the remake because apparently uh, it doesn't suck. So uh, <laughs> people are saying good things about it currently. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out. But yeah, uh, I watched the uh, Super Best Friends, two of them, did a full LP of, of Nier, getting all of the endings very shortly before Automata came out. So yeah, very interesting narrative that if you find yourself desperately wanting to experience but not wanting to play near, you should go check that out. It's it's very good. So the story about how near was made is uh kind of interesting. See, the concept that evolved into near was actually at first meant to be Drakengard three, but as the concept evolved and changed, the team decided to make it a spinoff title instead. But despite this, uh, Yoko Taro actually considers Nier to be part of the Guard franchise. Which, I mean, what, are we going to tell Yoko Taro that he's wrong about something? He is one of today's greatest auteurs. 
pretty much, and also one of today's craziest people in the video game industry. <laughs> accurate, accurate, yes. Uh, so Nier was in development for a total of three years, uh, which apparently only two of those were actual development. I assume the first one was more, you know, pre-production, getting the concept all set to go, etc., etc. It started as a small-scale project, actually. But then it kept ballooning and ballooning and ballooning, and it turned into the full action RPG that we know today. Uh, apparently, it was also originally planned to be exclusive to the Xbox 360. But then early on into development, they decided maybe we should also put this out on PlayStation 3 because, in case people don't know, the Xbox has never done well in Japan. None of them. Ever. It's something they have tried to fix over the years, it just has not worked out for them. So, the game has very heavy inspiration from Western games like God of War, which apparently Yoko Taro is a very big fan of God of War. That's interesting. But God of War, as a whole, had not actually been that popular in Japan, especially not as popular as it was here in, in the US. But they thought that the idea of having a game where fighting bosses while they were changing up the style in which you fight them, had a lot of potential to appeal to both Western and Japanese players. There's like, sometimes bosses in Nier will turn into a bullet hell? It's really bizarre, but it, it happens, and it's, it's kind of neat. I don't think it looks good in execution, but that's the kind of thing they wanted to do, and they were hoping that would appeal to players of both areas, Japan and the West. They also, I guess, were apparently trying to make a more mature game in the same vein as Kingdom Hearts, because they figured that this game could court an older demographic than the game where Mickey Mouse destroys the darkness would potentially be aiming at. This is the reason that Nier happens to have way more blood and swearing than you would expect from any Square Enix title ever. Like, I'm talking full F-bombs. Kaine does a lot of swearing. It's why she's the best character in the game. It's not actually just that, but it's part of it. But it's also the main reason for why the Western release only got the aged-up dad near instead of her brother. Speaking of, real quick, I might refer to the main character as near a couple of times, because the fandom has decided, no, that's his name, because otherwise, what the hell does that title mean <laughs> okay interesting but yoko taro says that is not his name because he does not have a name also quick question does laura bailey swear yes awesome she plays kaine right oh maybe I, maybe i just knew that she was in the game in some capacity i believe laura bailey plays uh kaine and absolutely yes does swear a lot <laughs> awesome so Apparently, Square just gave Taro, like, complete creative control over the project. They didn't meddle at all, which we now know to be both the greatest decision that Square has ever made and also the most terrifying prospect since giving Nomura creative control over anything, because Nomura and Taro both believe in a similar philosophy regarding canon, which is, shut up, it's all canon. <laughs> Taro decided that he wanted to focus on a lighter story, that was focused around themes of friendship and cooperation after Drakengard's dark and sad plot, but then in the same breath also mentions that the story was inspired by 9-11 and the War on Terror. Those two ideas mesh very well. Uh, 
Taro's reasoning for basing the game's story off of these things is that he liked the concept of a situation where both sides felt as if they were doing the right thing. Like, both sides consider themselves the good guys. There were multiple character concepts at the start that either ended up changed or scrapped completely. Uh, for instance, the original plan was to have 13 grimoires throughout the story. Only three of those are actually in the finished game. One of them, of course, being Grimoire Vice. Emile started out as a female character named Halua, though I wasn't able to find like an actual stated reason for why Emile was changed. So, eh. Kaine was apparently originally a very feminine woman, hiding her temper and love of violence, which obviously got a really hard change. Like, wow. Uh, speaking of Kaine, by the way, when the character designer for the game, who goes by DK, that's their moniker, showed Taro the design for Kaine, uh, Yoko Taro initially did not like it, which is really weird considering what I know about Yoko Taro. It seems like a design that's way up his alley. Uh, but uh, he claims that he was shocked when he saw the original character design, but eventually he warmed up to it and Kaine became this foul-mouthed warrior who happens to, you know, fight in her lingerie. And you're not going to believe me when I say this. They actually provide a really compelling reason for why she fights in her underwear. <laughs> so Kojima had no excuse because this was five years before Quiet. He had all the time in the world to figure this out. And no, the reason is not because Yokotaro is a thirsty boy. But that probably played a pretty non-significant part of the decision process, I assume. It's the same reason why you see certain things like that in Automata, yeah. Mr. Yoko, I really like big butts on my android maids, Taro. <laughs> yes, yes. Yona's name in Japanese is actually apparently based on the biblical character of Jonah, you know, the guy who got swallowed by a whale, but it was changed to Yona during localization because uh, Jonah is typically associated with being a male name over here. And I guess Japan just didn't care. <laughs> uh, Nier was received mixed to not great when it released. Uh, the PS3 version has a 68 on Metacritic, with the 360 version sitting at a 67. A lot of criticisms were aimed at the game's bland visuals, because it does just, it looks very just cliche and generic for a lot of it. And also, a lot of them just sort of aimed at the clunky combat, specifically when bosses do the aforementioned change up the mechanics with which you are fighting them. It didn't do great on that, but they did heavily praise the game's soundtrack and voice acting, which is super great. And some reviewers stated that despite the lackluster gameplay, the story made the game, quote, hard to hate. It would later earn itself a cult following, but sadly this did not translate into sales. In 2019, Yoko Taro estimated that the game had sold around 500,000 copies worldwide total, saying, quote, we weren't really in the red, but it wasn't exactly a success either. So it just sort of came out and was this middling thing. It was actually the last game to be developed by Kavia, because shortly after its release, the studio was absorbed into its parent company, AQ Interactive. 
Also, apparently a Vita port had been in the works at one point that would combine content from both versions of the game with Taro teaming up with the studio Orca in order to make it, but this got shelved when Orca was instead called upon to assist with the development of Dragon Quest X. Hmm, interesting. I did not know that. I also did not know that until until doing this research. Despite all this, though, Nier continues. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but the sequel, Nier Automata, released in 2017, we talked about that game's soundtrack way, 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 way back in the day in episode 5 of Original Sound Chat. Over a hundred episodes ago. That's not all, though. Because there are also stage plays, audio dramas, three raids in Final Fantasy XIV, and more, and they are all equally canon. And then, of course, the reason we're talking about this game this week, uh, Near Replicant version 1.22474487139, which is sure a name, Yoko, releases for PS4, Xbox One, and PC on the 23rd, that is just a few days from today. Supposedly it's a remake, but I don't know if I trust Taro for this to only be a remake. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to talk about not the main composer of Nier, because that was Keiji Okabe, who, again, we talked about for his work on Nier Automata, but we're going to talk about somebody who was just as, if not even more important to the soundtrack of Nier. Her name is Emmy Evans. She was born on July 19th, 1980, in London, England. She currently resides in Tokyo, and that's all I could find. But you can follow her on Twitter, at M-E-R Evans, that's E-M-I-R-E-V-A-N-S, all one word. And she has worked on a good amount of games, and by that I mean she's been a lyricist for some, and she's been a performer for some as well. Uh, obviously, near Replicant, and Gestalt. She performed in Dark Souls, Ace Combat, Assault Horizon. She apparently has a performance in the Gyakuten Saibon movie score. Hmm. The Ace Attorney movie score. So that's neat. She performed in Dark Souls 2, as well as Drakengard 3. She was a lyricist in Nier Automata, as well as a performer. Same with Grand Blue Fantasy, where she was a lyricist and performer. And most recently, she was a performer on the soundtrack of the indie game Calico. So let's get into the real meat and potatoes here, the historical development research for the soundtrack of Nier itself. So... Of course, like I said, it was composed by members of Monaka, headed by Keiji Okabe, alongside Kakeru Ishihama and Keigo Hoashi. Uh, Kavya's Takafumi Nishimura also contributed to the soundtrack. Okabe was brought on to the project before it even started full development, like back when the game was still merely a concept, probably back when it was still just Drakengard 3. And he says that the soundtrack was composed pretty much separately from the game's development. Uh, Okabe's goal was to feature various leitmotifs that would appear throughout the tracks, with his intention being to add an air of sadness, even when the track in question was exciting. Evans was brought on to the project due to her work on various Arrange albums for the Etrian Odyssey franchise. The soundtrack of Nier heavily features the vocals of 
Emmy Evans, which was by Yoko Taro's request. He wanted a soundtrack that had a big focus on vocals. He, he requested that from Okabe. But that is not where her involvement ended, because she also wrote the lyrics of all the songs. I'm sure we mentioned this during the Automata episode, too, but that was two years ago, and I don't remember. So pretend to be surprised again. I remind you that Nier's music is largely made up of a fictional language that Evans refers to as chaos language. <gasps> and <laughs> essentially, Yokotaro felt like if the music was in a language that you could understand, it would be too distracting for the player. So make it in a fictional language. And that way, nobody's distracted. Uh, and the composers would apparently just hand her an early draft of the song and say, hey, I want this kind of style of this language. And she would look at all of the languages that she could look at, including Gaelic, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, French, German, Hungarian, Welsh, Latin, English, and Japanese, just to name some of them. And she imagined what those languages would sound like 1,000 years into the future as the world sort of drifted apart and language started to re-evolve. This was at first very difficult for her, apparently, as she was just mashing up sounds and realizing that doing it that way, with multiple languages and some random sounds put together, kind of just resulted in a soundtrack that sounded kind of samey in terms of, like, vocals. So, she went to Okabe about this problem, and he suggested, what if you just base each song off of one language? And she agreed with that, and it turned out very great. Uh, as the project went on, Okabe apparently gave Evans a large amount of creative freedom when it came to these lyrics. Basically, because Okabe didn't really know for sure where these songs were going to play, apparently, he just sort of gave her light direction in terms of, this is the tone this song's supposed to have. And... Sometimes, apparently, the composers would even modify their music to better fit around Evan's lyrics. I feel like we had a similar thing in Automata, where they'd write music, and then Taro would put it somewhere totally different than where they expected, and it's like, okay. <laughs> sure. You do you, Yoko Taro. You do you. But this soundtrack is... Absolutely incredible. It is a fantastic soundtrack. Uh, like you said, people put it like on the list of all-timers, and I think I agree with that. So let's start with critical track number one. It's The Hills of Radiant Winds. So this song is actually considered to be the only, quote, upbeat song on the soundtrack. Uh, it plays in the Hyrule Field style area of the game, so like the overworld that leads to the different locations you're supposed to go. And apparently Evans wrote the lyrics based on the style of Portuguese for this specific one. 
and her goal with this song was to make it sound like, quote, a spirit floating in the wind. And I really, really like this song a lot. It's, it's a lot of fun. The vocals really add a whole lot to it, but even so, if the vocals weren't there, I still think this would be a very good piece. Yeah, you still get the intention of the mood they're going for with just the instruments, but yeah, you compare it even to uh, the City Ruins shade piece from Automata, and it's like it's night and day um, as far as like the peppy energy and the positivity here. Um, <laughs> this is one that I did happen to know from like, oh, people talk about near soundtrack. Let's look up a couple songs. And so uh, this is one that I've heard before, and it's always so good to hear again. You can totally imagine it on a, a big overworld. But you want to know what song is more indicative of the general tone of everything in Nier? Well, look no further than critical track number two, Cold Steel Coffin. This song plays the area, the Airy, one of the most interesting parts of the game, in my opinion, but I can't say why, because it's a huge spoiler. Uh, but it's also, I think, one of the most sinister songs on the soundtrack. Like, it sounds overbearing and evil, and there is nothing happy here. Stop looking for happy. And it's honestly kind of creepy, too. Yeah, this is near franchise music. This <laughs> is what it's all about. Uh, it sounds so good. And this is even, you know, later in the clip. Because in the beginning of the piece, like it starts with like the vocals only and it's super creepy and then it like builds even more. But I feel like this is all the elements at play and it just sounds so full and yeah, definitely sinister for sure. It is a very, very intimidating song, I think is a good way to put it. Meanwhile, critical track number three is kind of still that sort of down key one, but is also this really, really great piece probably one of my favorite on the soundtrack it is kine escape As you might have guessed from the name of the song, uh, this is Kainé's theme, and it is based on Gaelic. Evans apparently chose Gaelic because, in her mind, it had an air of beauty to it, especially with the vowels and how those were all used. But Gaelic could also have sort of an unrefined tone to it. And she figured, hey, that's perfect for Kainé. Kainé's a very pretty lady who's very angry all the time. <laughs> so... It works out. Uh, she describes it as, quote, the song which seems to make fans cry the most, especially when I perform it live. But for me, this will always be an uplifting song full of tenderness and power. And if you were listening to that clip and were wondering, what? I don't hear tenderness in that. Well, 
you can hear it in the other version of it being Kine Salvation. It's just a slower, more solemn version of Kaine's theme, and as far as I can tell, these two themes are uh, Emmy Evans' favorite songs in Near. Oh, I could totally tell why. Like Her skills are on full display here, and she crushes it. Uh, yeah, the, the key change in Escape, it's definitely uplifting, and it makes you think like, well, no, this is positive too, but I'm sure it goes more into like with Kaine's character and all that. Uh, Joe... In Escape, in, in the main version, is this something that breaks the uh, the 3-4 theory? Our, our waltz theory? I don't know. I don't consider the Escape version to sound creepy is the thing. Right. So I, so I think it kind of does break it. We, huh. We've always talked, if you've missed you know, past episodes of the show, we look at and you know, listen to these pieces that are in 3-4 and it's like, it yeah, just usually has an air of creepiness to it and like ah not this this is you know definitely uh you know uplifting especially in that second half but again this is another piece that is just definitely the air of near like this is what you should expect the music to sound like and i'm sure for a great character in this game it's a great theme overall and the, the yeah the salvation counterbalance to have it be more of a solemn more like tear jerking piece that's that's great uh, I mean, I th- I still think my theory comes out on top because an argument could be made for Cold Steel Coffin being 3-4. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And that's a creepy song. So, you know, it, it cancels each other out. But Kaine may be being the exception to the rule. Yeah. Following that is critical track number four, Song of the Ancients, Fate. So this is a duet of Song of the Ancients, which is the main theme of the twins, Devola and Popola, which I believe they also show up in Automata, I think? They sure do. They are very important characters in the original Nier, serving as the main character's sort of guides throughout the game. And they all have their own slightly different solo version of the Song of the Ancients throughout the whole game. But this one specifically plays during your final encounter with them as they become an obstacle that has to be surpassed. They become a boss fight, and turning this song suddenly into a duet is so cool and works so well. Uh, The original versions of the Song of the Ancients were apparently the first songs in the game to be recorded, and it was also Evan's first attempt at creating the chaos language aspect to get inspiration for their theme. Apparently they just showed Evans a clip of the two characters and said, it'll be their theme. And so she wrote it based on multiple languages and incorporating 
random sounds. And this is the song where she figured maybe the rest of the soundtrack should be just based on one, one language per song. Uh, but this is a really, really cool song. Uh, you don't hear it in the clip, but at the very beginning, there's these heavy drums that just really hammer in that like, no, it's go time. Let's do this. It's great. This is going to sound weird, but Song of the Ancients is one of those pieces that it's like, play this at my funeral. <laughs> this is one of my favorite video game music pieces in general. This one, the Automata one, you know, just, just trade it back and forth. It could be either, but so gorgeous, so beautiful. I mean, it's fantastic enough when it's solo vocals, but you're right. The duet is magical. The harmonies the instrumentation behind it it's just one of those like peak video game music tracks i think and you know for someone who did not have the recognition with debola and popola when it comes to how they appear in automata i you know i'm sure that would have been even more impactful but just a surface level this song is incredible mhm and it was her first attempt at writing the lyrics she nailed it <laughs> I mean, I think she was right in that if every song sounded like this, it probably would have been very samey. But, like, this is still a fantastic piece. But actually, my personal real favorite in this game happens to be critical track number five. It's Ashes of Dreams. This is the song that plays over the credits, uh, and it's the only song in the soundtrack that is written in a real, recognizable language. In fact, it wasn't just written in one recognizable language, there are versions of this song in four recognizable languages. There's the English version, which you heard in the clip, which is referred to as New. There's Nouveau, which is French. There's I tried looking up how this was pronounced and didn't have a lot of luck. So, Nuadaik in Gaelic and Aratanaru in Japanese. Uh, and apparently this song has like real world language because Evan specifically suggested maybe just one song should have <laughs> recognizable singable lyrics. Maybe just one. And she apparently convinced them that it would be a good idea. Uh, the different versions with the different languages play depending on the ending that you get. Evans considers this song to have been the hardest in the game to write because the process was apparently the composing team gave her a list of Japanese words that they wanted to be incorporated into the lyrics, and she was in charge of putting those to the various other languages as well. They also suggested that the song have a sense of despair and a lack of hope, which she also seemed like she had real issues with. Uh, you hear in the clip more of a, it's the chorus, basically, which is, you know, that's the main part of the song. But I've always personally been super drawn to the very first verse and the lyrics there being, Once there were trees full of birds, 
Meadowlands vibrant with flowers, Carefree the songs our children once sang, Gilding the minutes and hours, Clouds came and covered the sun, The breath of the baleful unease, Turning to ashes, flowers in their fields, Silenced the birds in the trees. That is a really powerful verse. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, it's good to see that when Automata did its different languages in the ending and based on real, uh, real actual language, I mean, it's based on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unpopular opinion, I like this more than Weight of the World, which is Automata's <laughs> ending. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's just me. That's my opinion. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good conclusion to a critical five which must have been tough to do kind of yes actually because i would have loved to put both of my cutting floor tracks on the critical five but obviously uh five is a thing so before i get to my first cutting room floor track listener i need you to do something for me when i say that the song is called bluebird what do you picture in your head what song do you hear I bet you it isn't this. My first song on the cutting room floor is Bluebird. It's so angry. This song is so angry. I believe it is a boss theme in a couple different spots in the game. But like, wow, that is not what you would expect with a peaceful name like Bluebird. Not at all. I think of uh, Bluebird in Zero Escape and it's a nice, (laughs) nice, pleasant, if a bit somber melody. And oh, no, no, not this. I almost thought it's like, was this track misnamed? I'm sure there's a reason. (laughs) I... I'm sure there is, but I have never been able to find it. And my second track on the cutting room floor is Emil Karma. Uh, Emil, much like Kaine, has two different versions of his theme. Uh, this is the more action-y theme that plays during a very big part of his story. Uh, and I had to get Emil in here somewhere. This song is pretty good. I don't think it's as good as Kaine. But it's too important to not have any representation of Emil here. So there you go. This theme also returns in Automata, so I was really happy to hear it here. Uh, so, good inclusion. I did not know this theme came back in Automata. That is good to know. So what will I never forget about Nier? I mean, I never played it. I watched a Let's Play. But honestly, I think Nier might do some of the coolest narrative things I've ever seen in a video game. Ever. Uh, and I'm sure Automata, like, one-ups it super hard. I still gotta play it. Oh god, I still gotta play it. <laughs> the thing, like, when you beat the game for the first time then you unlock something that's a little bit confusing and you go and play again and one one thing is changed and that thing has so many implications that it's actually insane <laughs> there are 
more implications to this one change than anything else I can think of in any game that has ever been. It's really, really cool. And also, the way that the true ending plays out is also very, very cool. And honestly, if you're not interested in the remake, which, again, sounds like it's good this time, uh, you can go watch an LP of Nier. You will not regret it. It's super cool. I'm just going to echo all the fans screaming at you right now. You need to play Automata uh, because like all the things you're saying are, yep, 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 ding, 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 even more so in the sequel. And that's coming from someone who played it without the knowledge of Nier. So I think you learning as much as you did about Nier, you're going to have a greater appreciation for when you do play Automata. And uh, yeah, wow, I just great to learn more about the soundtrack uh, from my perspective personally. That's what I'll never forget uh, because, yeah, everyone does talk up this one and Automata to some extent. But like this is what did it first and it, it stands out a whole lot because of that. Yeah, it's a fantastic soundtrack. A cool game that I hope to never have to play the original version of. So for our transition, we usually highlight a fan cover or remix. And honestly, uh, I dug through a lot of covers of Kaine, and I did manage to find a cover of Kaine Salvation from YouTuber Liz Robinette. That's L-I-Z-Z Robinette, R-O-B-I-N-E-T-T. And she kills these vocals. She's really, really good and I was really impressed by what I saw. So please enjoy that, and we will be right back. It's time to learn about a game character that's groovy or something like that. Look, it was a time in the early 90s when characters had like little voice samples and certain things had to stand out to make them cool mascot characters, especially for platformers in the 90s. And one of these characters was Earthworm Jim. Now, Earthworm Jim was a character that was created by Doug Tennepel. And if you're wondering, that name seems kind of familiar. We, we brought him up uh, during the episode on The Neverhood, which is a game that he was the creative director for, had, had the vision for the, the clay men in The Neverhood. And that was episode 68 of Original Sound Chat. So yeah, same creator there. Earthworm Jim the game we're talking about, is a game that first released on Sega Genesis in North America, or Mega Drive, if you're in Europe. It released here first, and in North America, it was released in April? August? Maybe it was October? A whole bunch of different uncertainty uh, when it comes to when was the release date? Uh, for the North American version of Earthworm Jim on Sega Genesis. So let's say October 1994, and it was November 1994 for Mega Drive in Europe. Then a Super Nintendo version would arrive about a month later. And it was the only version of the game to launch in Japan, though that launched in like mid-1995. Then, in 1995, 
a special edition of Earthworm Jim was released. And it had like a new level, improved music, like a thousand more animations, and many more improvements. And this launched for Sega CD. Ooh, what a, a strange platform to have that for. This version would also be ported to PC for Windows 95. And then ports of the original game also exist for Game Boy, Sega Game Gear, Game Boy Advance, mobile phones with big old buttons on the touchscreen of the phones, as well as DSiWare. The game would also get remastered in 2010 for PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 as Earthworm Jim HD, but it is no longer available to download there due to expiring rights. The Steam version that's now available to currently buy and play, it's based on a DOS version and it isn't really highly recommended. So if you're playing this game for the first time, I would say the Sega CD and Windows 95 special edition is the best one. But honestly, the originals, whether it's on Genesis or Super Nintendo, do hold up. Uh, for what it's worth, it's included on the Sega Genesis mini console. If you'd like to go about a, a legal, put your money where your mouth is way of doing so. But here's the point when it comes to Earthworm Jim. As you may have picked up on, there are so many ports of the original game. And as a result, for all of these different platforms, the soundtrack sounds different on each one. So between the special edition, DSi, the HD version, Genesis, SNES, Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, Game Gear, there are eight versions of this soundtrack. I don't think this is a problem we've ever had on the show before. Yeah, no, I can't think of anything that would have caused this exact issue. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many options to choose from that sound so different. So honestly, we're going to go with the special edition, the, the Sega CD, the Windows 95 version, because honestly, it sounds the best. There are YouTube videos out there that show the compilation of how these different soundtracks sound, though, especially uh, if you're curious with, in particular, the the opening level of the game called New Junk City. So you can do some YouTube searching if you want to hear all eight and how different they are. So when it comes to the original Genesis Mega Drive game, though, Earthworm Jim was originally developed by Shiny Entertainment. It was published by Playmates Interactive Entertainment in North America, Virgin Interactive Entertainment in Europe, and Takara in Japan. Earthworm Jim is a side-scrolling, 2D platformer with run-and-gun elements as well. The player can use Jim's gun as a method of shooting enemies, or his head as a whip for whipping enemies. The whip move also allows the player to grab a hold of and swing from certain hooks in the game, so a different kind of traversal there. After you go through the level and you take care of the boss at the end of the level, then you go to a 3D-like tunnel race against a bounty hunter. And this happens every time as you travel to the next level. If you lose that race, then you have to fight the bounty hunter. So think of it as uh, the gummy ship in the original Kingdom Hearts, but there are consequences if you don't do well. If you hit one single Heartless, 
<laughs> you gotta fight a swarm of heartless. Something like that, yes. With the same music playing during each race. So, the plot of Earthworm Jim is more conveyed in the manual. Remember when those were a thing? Manuals with games? It's it's not really in any cutscenes in the game, that's for sure. But here's the gist of it. Earthworm Jim was just an ordinary earthworm engaging in normal worm activities such as eating dirt, crawling, and fleeing from hungry birds until one day wherein fate should happen to smile upon him and his life was changed forever. See, a fearsome bounty hunter named Psy Crow was en route to deliver the quote, ultra high-tech indestructible super space cyber suit to the evil... <coughs> Queen pulsating, bloating, festering, sweaty, pus-filled, malformed slug for a butt. Or queen slug for a butt for short. But Psycho got in a confrontation with another spaceship, and he lost the suit out of an airlock. The suit fell to Earth, landing on a farm somewhere in the southern United States. While fleeing from a flock of hungry crows, Jim took refuge in the mysterious suit. The suit's powerful atomic particles affected Jim's wormy flesh and caused him to grow and evolve at a fantastic rate. Upon discovering his newfound powers granted by the suit, he overhears Psycho talking to Queen Slug for a butt and becomes interested in meeting the Queen's twin sister, Princess What's-Her-Name. Can Jim hold on to the suit and avoid being pursued by Psycho? Will he get to meet Princess What's-Her-Name? By defeating Queen Slug for a butt? Oh, this series sure has names, that's for sure. <laughs> Joe, here's where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with Earthworm Jim? I have never touched an Earthworm Jim game. I've seen screenshots. To me, Earthworm Jim is one of those characters, you know those characters where you look at them and you're like, I guess that character existed at one point, only for suddenly a bunch of people to come out of the woodwork and be like, that character's my favorite character in the world. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. they're the best, and I love them. And it's like, where were you like 10 minutes ago? Uh, so that's, that's what I think of when I think of Earthworm Jim. I think of one of my childhood friends from elementary school who had Earthworm Jim. I think it was on PC. And so like, I'd, I'd watch him play it. So it's it's a character and a concept I'm vaguely familiar with, but not one I'm like, oh, I have deep nostalgic reverence for. Uh, certainly no memory of the music or anything like that. I mean, yeah, names like Queen Slug for a Butt, that sticks with you. That's a thing. But I always thought he was voiced by Dan Castellaneta, a.k.a. the famous voice of Homer Simpson, which he is in a cartoon series. Uh, but in the game, he's voiced by Doug Tenepel. So, I mean, I, I guess that's uh, kind of what I remember about Earthworm Jim. I, like, not necessarily anything about a sequel or anything like that, but just, oh yeah, he is a character, he had a game. That's something in the, the back of my memory, I suppose. So looking up information about Earthworm Jim's development, apparently there's, there's some tie-in with... The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because after they found success with the license for that franchise, Playmates Toys wanted to start their own franchise. As was the style at the time. That's why Battletoads exists, too. <laughs> right. I mean, find 
the the new cool character that you can put in a platformer and see where it goes from there. So Playmates was inspired by the success of Sonic the Hedgehog with, you know, Sonic 1 and Sonic 2. And they decided that they wanted to start a franchise with a video game, which at the time was a pretty rare approach. So this is where Doug Tennepel presents a simple sketch of what would become Earthworm Jim to Shiny Entertainment. And programmer David Perry there, as well as the rest of Shiny, were so impressed that they bought the rights to Earthworm Jim from Tennepel. And they started developing this game, Earthworm Jim. From there, Tennepel would work on doing the game design, creating level ideas, and voicing Jim's character, while Perry and the other programmers created other characters and game mechanics. At the time, the game was also kind of created and seen as a satire of other platform video games, especially because Shiny had been stuck doing really restrictive licensed games, such as 7-Up's Cool Spot. <laughs> In particular, Princess What's-Her-Name was a parody of how so many video games just had throwaway female characters that had to be saved. Reviews were overall pretty positive uh, in a time when, uh, you know, review numbers may have been a little harsh because of how games were reviewed and numbered at the time. It overall has an 81% average on game rankings. Some points of praise for the original Earthworm Jim include the animations, long levels, a warped sense of humor, and the soundtrack. Though some reviewers thought that there wasn't really anything new there, or they were overall just getting burned out by platforming characters that felt specially designed to be hip and be successful. There are so many dead mascot characters from this exact point in time. Like it was a it was a thing back then. That was the big genre that you needed to make. Think of how for a long time every first person shooter that came out was this is the Halo Killer. Uh, it was that, but with Mario and Sonic. So you get Bubsy. Or you get, wasn't there Acro the Bat? Yep, Acro the Bat. Uh, I'm sure there's there are a bunch others. Gax. Oh, God, Gax. Yeah, Gax would have been one of them. Buck Bumble. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, but games like this, absolutely. But Earthworm Jim was named Best Genesis Game of 1994 by Electronic Gaming Monthly, so it was pretty well regarded. So much so that they made a franchise out of Earthworm Jim, and a sequel, Earthworm Jim 2, released in 1995. Future games include Earthworm Jim 3D for the Nintendo 64 and PC, and Earthworm Jim Menace to the Galaxy for the Game Boy Color, and these were both produced in 1999, but they were developed without the involvement of Shiny Entertainment, and as a result, they were mostly met with negative reviews. There was also, as I mentioned, an Earthworm Jim TV series, where he was voiced by Dan Castellaneta and not Tenipel, a comic book series, and a line of action figures. Earthworm Jim is trying to make a comeback, though, as Earthworm Jim 4 is currently in development for the upcoming Intellivision Amico system. And we'll get to that in a bit. Because when it comes to the soundtrack of Earthworm Jim and the story of its music, we have to talk about 
Tommy Tallarico. And how did we take so long to talk about Tommy Tallarico? He's a name that I have heard about for years. I think I first heard about him in my infancy of knowledge with his collaboration with Mega64 on their Gamer Wars series. And I also knew, oh, he did that video games live thing, right? Tommy Tallarico is a force in the video game industry. And I was fascinated not only to learn so much about him, but also see how much material there was to research about Tommy Tallarico. Because when we've covered composers on this show, you know, a lot of Japanese figures, right? Some famous have, you know, done big interviews and all that, but there's a language barrier there. Tommy Tallarico being an American composer, you know, not only has he accomplished so much, but he markets himself so well. And so there is a plethora of things to cover about Tommy Tallarico. So let's get right into it. Tommy Tallarico was born on February 18th, 1968 in Springfield, Massachusetts. He spent much of his childhood around music because his cousin is Stephen Tallarico. Who, who is Stephen Tallarico? Who, who am I even talking about? Who, who is this guy? Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith is Tommy Tallarico's cousin. Huh. See, <laughs> here I am thinking Stephen Tyler is his real name. No, no. Stephen Tallarico is the man's real name. So, growing up with a cousin about 20 years his senior and being inspired by his music and having that in the family uh, certainly would inspire you at a young age. Tommy Tallarico's parents also took him to see the Springfield Symphony when he was about nine years old. And so he then taught himself to play piano and guitar. He cites John Williams's score for Star Wars as well as Bill Conti's Rocky score as inspirations for being hooked on classical music. So between classical music inspirations and, I don't know, your family member being the front man for one of the biggest bands in the world, it's a pretty good foundation for music. Boy, I'd say. <laughs> but he was also big into games. He and his father played Asteroids and Space Invaders together. And Tallarico would take his father's tape recorder to the arcade to specifically record the songs. He would then splice the tape into the background music and then perform guitar over the result for his neighborhood friends. When it comes to his education, he attended Western New England University for a year, but then at about age 21, so let's say this is about 1989, Tallarico decided to go to California to try and obtain a job in the video game industry. While he was homeless and living under a pier, Tallarico took a job as a keyboard salesman at the Guitar Center in Santa Ana, California. On his first day, Tallarico caught the eye of an employee of the new video game company Virgin Mastertronic because Tallarico happened to be wearing a TurboGrafx t-shirt. As a result, after that conversation, Tallarico was then given a job with Virgin to be their first playtester. He would petition the bosses at Virgin Interactive to write game music, even offering to do so for free in his spare time. And he got his first break with the Prince of Persia Game Boy port that Virgin did. From small beginnings, he would go on to be their head of music and video division, 
until 1994, when he then went on to found Tommy Tallarico Studios. He also claims to be the first musician to release a video game soundtrack worldwide. And this was in 1994 with his, you know, Tommy Tallarico Greatest Hits Volume 1. And he did this through Capitol Records. A couple years later, he established a friendship with Victor Lucas, who is the owner of the Canadian video game website Electric Playground. They had an interview in like 1995 and they got to know each other. And then in 1997, Tallarico and Lucas wrote, produced, and co-hosted Electric Playground TV, which is the longest video game TV show that has ever run. It's a show that ran until 2018, although Tallarico became busy with other projects in 2006. The review section of the show was spun off into its own program in 2002 called Reviews on the Run, which eventually would just be re-aired on the American network G4, as Judgment Day. Even then, Tallarico worked very hard to establish video game music as something that was worthy of note and have some of these bigger names in the music industry take notice. So in 1999, he helped secure official recognition of video game music by the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences and the Grammys. In 2002, we've talked about the Game Audio Network Guild before, gang, right? Mm-hmm. Multiple times. Oh, in 2002, he only became the founder and the chairman of the board <laughs> of the Game Audio Network Guild. Like, that's that's his doing. As I mentioned before, though, Tommy Tallarico established Video Games Live with the show's debut performance in 2005. He did that with Jack Wall being the conductor the idea of Video Games Live is that it features music from the greatest video games performed by top orchestras and choirs around the world, combined with synchronized video footage, lasers, lights, special effects, interactivity, and live action to create an explosive and unique one-of-a-kind entertainment experience. That's the pitch of it. It's something I was lucky enough to see when I was in London, England in late October 2018. Uh, my friend Sai hooked us up with tickets and was lucky enough to be there and got to go. And it was something I'll never forget. I mean, it's an incredible performance. Tallarico was there. He played guitar on uh, one of their Castlevania medleys. And even at the end of the show, he brought on Jason Page, the singer of the original Pokemon anime theme, to do a live performance there at the end. It was It was incredible. As someone who loved video game music, every track, I was just... I was there. The, the Mass Effect compilation, oh my goodness, just, it was, it was magical. I was given tickets for a video games live show for my birthday one year, because they were supposed to come to Kansas City, and I guess not enough people bought tickets and the show got canceled. <sighs> so, Oh, what a shame. You would have loved it. I, I hope you get to see it in the future, because it's, it's still going. They've performed over 500 shows in 42 countries on five continents. They've released six albums of, you know... Abbey Road Studios, like, recorded versions for the, the audio. I found it interesting to note that they've also, you know, they've done shows in Japan and on their website, uh, Tommy Tallarico noted how some of the Japanese composers that performed and appeared at our shows in Japan were Koji Kondo, Akira Yamaoka, Norihiko Hibino, Kinuyo Yamashita, Michiru Yamane, Takenobu Mitsuyoshi, Yasunori Mitsuda, Kao Otani, Jun Sunoe, and others. 
you know, just some of the big Japanese names that we've covered on this show. Just, they showed up at Video Games Live. No Yoko Shimomura, though, so why should I care? No, no, it's, that's a hell of a list. You gotta get on that, Tommy. I mean, come on. <laughs> but what is Tommy doing these days? Well, in 2018, he was named CEO and president of the legacy video game company Intellivision Entertainment. And with this brand refresh, Intellivision plans to launch a brand new home video game system called the Intellivision Amico. It is currently scheduled to release in October 2021. I almost had this lined up just so because it was originally like dated for April 15th. And it's like, oh, the timing would have been perfect. And uh, it just got pushed and COVID and all that. So October 2021 is when it's currently planned. Uh, It's targeting affordable, easy to learn family gaming with new games at $10 or less on their shop there. But if that wasn't all impressive enough about Tommy Tallarico, he currently holds five Guinness World Records, including the person who has worked on the most commercially released video games and the largest symphony show ever seen live. And that would have been Video Games Live's uh, performance in Beijing with over 752,000 people. In Tommy Tallarico's spare time, he enjoys nature, photography, traveling, backgammon, watch collecting, cooking, practicing and learning magic, video games, comic books, Italian sports cars, baseball, Formula One, being a kid, and meeting new people. He currently lives in Orange County, California with his wife Shannon, three dogs, and a horse. You can currently find him on Twitter at Tommy Tallarico. So yes, when it comes to his discography, he's worked on more than 320 video game titles. It's a lot. But ones that jumped out uh, to my eyes were the aforementioned Cool Spot from 7-Up, Disney's Aladdin, The Jungle Book, Earthworm Jim and Earthworm Jim 2, Madden NFL 96, Pac-Man World, Tomorrow Never Dies, Spider-Man, Spy Hunter 2, The Bard's Tale, Advent Rising, Pac-Man World Rally, and some help on Sonic and the Black Knight. As we mentioned a couple episodes ago, he also did uncredited sound design on Metroid Prime, doing a lot of the work at Tommy Tallarico Studios before Retro had to pick it up and run with it. And uh, I found this especially interesting. Tommy Tallarico created the OOF sound effect made famous by Roblox for When You Die. It was originally from a game from 2000 called Messiah. And he's actually been tied up in this legal dispute uh, with Roblox that only got resolved in November 2020. The sound effect is now available in the Roblox store and you can pay about what turns out to be a dollar uh, to buy it, to use it. Uh, yeah, I found that interesting. That's that's a pretty well-known sound effect. It's been everywhere, and that's his doing. I don't know what sound effect is being talked about. This is a great shame upon me and my family and my house. But also, I didn't expect Roblox to come up today. <laughs> you know, maybe the less you know about Roblox, maybe that's that's for the best. About Earthworm Jim, though, uh, one of the more interesting parts about the the soundtrack is that, you know, Tommy Tallarico did the work for the in-game music composition, but it's credited in-game to Mark Miller. And Tallarico notes how, you know, while he wrote the music, he credited Miller for, 
quote, legal reasons. It's not really specified why that's the case, but Miller assisted Tallarico on the soundtrack for the Genesis. So what does Earthworm Jim and its soundtrack sound like? Well, let's, let's be specific. We're going to talk about the special edition. This is the Sega CD Windows 95 version. I think it happens to sound the best. And so as we get into the five critical tracks for Earthworm Jim, we have to start with that first level. It's New Junk City. Boy, this just screams first level, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Just right away, the drums sound amazing. They're really punchy. They hit you just so. And the synth work going on here, I mean, different layers with the lower, kind of more bass synths to the higher melodic ones, the one that especially cuts in with the melody there. I mean, it sounds great for 1995. There's no doubt about that. And I think it's important to know, I'll, I'll note at least the original here for reference. This is what New Junk City sounds like on Sega Genesis or Mega Drive. So yeah, it sounds great on on that sound chip, but boy, oh boy, when you put it on, on CD-ROM, I mean, the possibilities are just seemingly endless by comparison. So you definitely hear the sound difference there. I mean, it's a first level and, you know, watching a Let's Play to try to familiarize myself with some of the gameplay and how uh, it goes, like this song catches you immediately. It's so well done. Yeah, this is a really good song. I agree the drums are the standout part of this song. They're the chef's kiss. Great. Uh, but yeah, this is a first level as hell song. <laughs> Without a doubt. Let's get to number two on the Critical Five, a song that you will hear a lot. This is Andy Asteroids. I'm a rocket man. Yeehaw. So, boy, oh boy, uh, banjo and fiddle rule this piece for sure. And Joe, we've talked in the past, you know, if anything, the video game industry needs more banjo. Damn right they do. And while the composition here is great uh, and it sounds really good, and it sets that kind of southern U.S. vibe that Earthworm Jim is supposed to be from. It does that really quite well. 
you're going to hear it a lot. I mean, like we said, it's like that gummy ship thing from Kingdom Hearts where you're hearing it between every main level, transporting to the next area. And so you're going to hear it a lot, especially when the sound effects come in later in the piece. A great composition overall. I just think from the game design standpoint, the repetition may be a bit much. Yeah, I can't imagine hearing this song a ton and not eventually getting annoyed. But from the sidelines, I love me some banjo and fiddle. And this is some good banjo and fiddle. What is it with space games and sometimes just having banjo? Like Outer Wilds does that too, which we'll be talking about sometime in the next couple months. But like, why does banjo fit really well in space? I don't understand. They're space cowboys, you know? <laughs> I guess so. Number three on the Critical Five. Let's get a little more subdued and sinister. This is Down the Tubes. Just another one where the special edition version of the soundtrack just shines. You hear those instrument samples, that slappy bass, just amazing samples, and it sounds so good, especially for the time. But yeah, just a really dark atmosphere. In the game itself, you're almost kind of like in this Bioshock Rapture-like environment, going through all these like tubes and pipes and there's like water in the background it really you know watching that i'm like oh, it makes me think of rapture immediately but i mean with the bass and the drums going and bop, 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 like the low instruments here just a really dark presence a sinister vibe and atmosphere it's another one where listening to it and watching the game like oh this one stands out for sure i had to slot it in here so, obviously, this is not what you were implying, but when you say, when you compare it to Rapture, all I can think is, so that's where they got the idea. Andrew <laughs> Ryan stole it from Earthworm Jim, even though Earthworm Jim didn't exist at the time that Andrew Ryan <laughs> existed. But who cares? That's what happened now. I really like this song. I think it might be my favorite in the Critical Five, for sure. It's the coolest, I think. I mean, New Junk City, I think, to me, stands out just because it's like it's the first blush with the soundtrack. But as far as like setting a mood, this one really does a great job. As we move on to number four on the Critical Five, you know, sometimes when it's it's Queen Slug for a butt, you're going to get some uh, some wordplay in titles here. But this is Buttville.
Buttville is the final level of the game, and you know what? I don't think we'll ever have another song covered on this show called Buttville or anything close, but that's, that's what they're going for, I guess, here. So, I mean, really light, magical-sounding synths at the beginning, which another example of you hear the differences and these different soundtracks and yet doing the best with what's provided but this sounds the best clearly and especially when those heavy beats kick in and get you just right into the tension i don't hear this piece and think of like normal final level music with the big stakes and all that but it does set a certain kind of vibe and when you're going through Buttville, um, you know, it, it creates a good interplay with the visuals of this one, for sure. Not to mention that this is the most Genesis song I've ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. Isn't it, though? Yeah, you can totally imagine what the Genesis version sounds like, and then it just gets amped up for this special edition. It's honestly kind of jarring, almost, because we're talking about the Sega CD here. But uh, yeah, no, this song's pretty good. I think Down the Tube still narrowly beats it out. That's my favorite, but it's definitely up there. I wish I wish it didn't have such a 90s name, but whatever. <laughs> it's, it's the humor for the time, that's for sure. And we'll wrap up the Critical 5 with the credits. Important to note, not only because it wraps up the game experience, but that little fanfare at the beginning is what plays in between levels. And so then you don't hear the full thing until the credits. And then it leads into this, this banjo. Again, banjo. It's, it's more kind of bluegrass, Southern American feel here, but a lot of trumpet-led melodies as well. And it's, it's this kind of chaotic but fun and triumphant melody. And uh, it's it's a good time. But yeah, hearing that opening fanfare so many times, but cut off because of uh, in between levels, nice to hear the full thing. This song is familiar and I don't know why. I have no idea when I would have ever heard it outside the context of this show, but I hear it and I'm like, I've heard this song before. Where the hell have I heard this song before? And uh, it's always really weird when a song does that to me, which happens more often than you'd think. That and I'm kind of a snob about trumpet middies, and I don't really think that the Genesis has all that great trumpet middies. But, I mean, it's it's good overall. I, I'm fine with it. I just wish I knew where I recognized it from. Yeah, isn't that amazing? The power of video game music. But yeah, once again, I mean, sounds good here, but yeah, I can only imagine what the Genesis would have sounded like. Mm-hmm. On the cutting room floor, there are a couple strange ones, and I felt like I had to include them somewhere. This first one is aptly titled, What the Heck?
All right. What did you just listen to? Well, first of all, could you imagine that this is the lava level in the game? So you hear Night on Bald Mountain, famous piece, Fantasia, Chernabog, all that that conjures uh, the original piece by Modest Msorgsky. And then record scratch some some record static into th this kind of happy piece with a lot of scream sound effects. It's so peculiar. It stands out certainly for being an odd choice. Uh, but you know, it's it's gotta be here at least on the cutting room floor. So I don't know what's funniest to me. The fact that yes, that is the most bizarre jarring transition I've possibly ever heard in this entire show so far. Or the fact that this is only the second game where we would have been able to mention Night on Bald Mountain that we've covered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you didn't bring it up in Kingdom Hearts, but it, it was there. Sure is, in a bad boss fight that's cool aesthetically and not very cool to play. <laughs> But, I mean, it's it's the length of that record static. It's like it's uncomfortable, and it's like that in the game. It's peculiar, but it's it's a choice, and I respect Talarico for taking that leap. And then this other one on the cutting room floor is Who Turned Out the Lights? Joe, we love us some solo piano. And you know what? When it has this old-timey ragtime flair to it, it's just an extra special layer of chef's kiss. You know, go nuts, go ham. Takes me back to the old days at the saloon. <laughs> so I think this takes place in like a secret level from what I was able to gather. You're essentially platforming in it with lights out so it's a fitting title for the level which you know is just always a great time it was great when donkey kong country did it just kidding that level sucks <laughs> but at least there's great music to go along with it and it stood out at least for mention on the cutting room floor so what will i never forget about earthworm jim I'm, I'm glad to learn about the soundtrack about tommy tallarico's career which is just amazing uh, but also just good to have more context from some childhood memories from elementary school, honestly. I don't really have much interest in playing <laughs> Earthworm Jim at any point in my life. Uh, I've never touched it. I don't feel like I have a lot of reason to fix that. And I don't know, he's just always going to be this character that's just barely in my periphery. Like, I know he exists, but I barely know anything about him. And I don't have any real desire to change that. It's bizarre. I don't have that sort of relationship with like any other character that I can think of. Yeah, it's super 90s, obviously for a reason. I think it's just going to be interesting to see how he makes a comeback. And that'll be, that'll be interesting. So, yes, these two games, Nier and Earthworm Jim, with all of their different 
version discrepancies. All of the ports, Gestalt, Replicant, the remake, everything. I mean, it's I think it's what brings these two games together. Because the tone sure as hell doesn't. <laughs> Absolutely not. But their soundtracks are really, really good. And that will do it for us this week on Original Sound Chat. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at the Dobaga. The video version of the show is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, but it's that MP3 podcast version that you want. Hosted by Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. It's where Joe's other podcast, Smasterpieces, is hosted that he does with our friend Matt. And you can find Smasterpieces and Original Sound Chat at podcast services all around the globe. So find us, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. You can even find us on Spotify, where we have a feed of podcast episodes and things like that. But we also have a Spotify playlist. And when we cover a video game song on the show and it's on Spotify, it's getting added to that monster playlist. Joe, anything added this week? So all of Nier is on Spotify. It was added, I think, two years ago. They added both that and Automata. Earthworm Jim, for obvious reasons, is a bit of a hard one to answer on that front. Uh, some of them seem to be, because I think there's one or two best of albums on there. But A, I don't know what versions those would be. And B, I don't know if it's all of the songs that are like on this Critical 5 or the cutting room floor. So that's going to be a fun adventure that I will have to figure out. Well, hopefully a couple tracks here and there will make it. Then when you're done listening, you can find us on social media at SoundChatOST. Leave some feedback for us. Give us some suggestions for games to cover in the future, like Earthworm Jim, a game that I have no personal connection to, but really enjoyed learning about. It's one of our big goals for 2021 to do that more for the show. We'll get some merch going soon, and we'll have bonus tracks to roll out for you. But in the meantime, Joe, who are we talking about next week? I will be talking about Minako Adachi. I will be talking about Yoshitaka Suzuki. Oh boy, some big RPGs that we're finally getting to. Can't wait. It's going to be another big episode. To play us out, though, let's talk about a cover that someone did of Earthworm Jim, whether it's on YouTube, OC Remix, wherever. Found one on YouTube from Michael Sobin. He did what he called a mega rock cover of New Junk City, and it slaps. It's so good. Thank you so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care.